of our friends are only talking about one thing, and it's this story. An FBI investigation called Operation Varsity Blues. USC, UCLA. And Rick Singer. The mastermind behind the entire operation. Is there any risk that this thing blows up in my face? Hey, Rick. Hey there. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Lucasfilm and Disney Plus, presenting an all-new Star Wars series, The Accolade. Stream the two-episode premiere this Tuesday and witness an investigation into a shocking crime spree where secrets will emerge and no one is safe from the truth. The Acolyte, two-episode premiere, streaming this Tuesday only on Disney+. Plus. to TV Concierge, a podcast on TheRinger.com that helps you navigate the vast streaming landscape. My name is Amelia Wedemeyer, and I co-host Tea Time. And today, I am so excited. I am joined by Claire McNear. She is a writer for TheRinger.com. She also wrote a piece about what we're going to talk about today. So I'm very, very excited. This is fun. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to talk about this. Um, it, it was a very fun <laughs> little documentary that is that is out now is. on Netflix. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess like I will I will just start kind of with the summary of of what this is for anybody who Please. doesn't know it. I can't imagine there are many people who don't know what Operation Varsity Blues <laughs> was at this point. But in case you're a little rusty on the details, Operation Varsity Blues is the FBI code name for an investigation into corruption in college admissions that led to a whole bunch of arrests back in 2019. Um, and the essence of what happened was that a man named Rick Singer, who presented himself as a private college counselor, built a network of coaches at prestigious colleges and universities around the country, places like Yale and U.S and UCLA and Stanford, just, you know, very well-known, very prominent schools. Um, and he worked with a number of extremely wealthy parents to arrange to get their kids into those schools through what he called the side door. And his, his kind of explanation of that was that the front door was you get in to a school based right. on your own merits. And the back door was for the children of the super, super mega donors who donate millions and millions of dollars, you know, build yes. a library that's named after them, whatever it is. And their their kids tend tend to get a little bit of a boost in the admissions process. And then the, the side door, as Rick Singer uh, termed it, was basically that these parents would pay um, what the FBI considered to be what amounted to bribes, um, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, to have their students basically earmarked as wild athletes. And so they would get, yeah, they would get basically tagged to get into those schools. And, and in a lot of the cases, they didn't even <laughs> play the sport, much less at an elite <laughs> level. And so there are all these kind of funny tidbits about like them photoshopping images of them, you know, from like their, their mansion right. school playing water polo and sticking their head on another person's body and, and right. stuff like that. And Rick Slayer did other things too, like arranging for standardized testing to be falsified or corrected and scores improved. And, um, you know, most famously, the scheme also involved actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, both of whom ended up spending some time behind bars for their involvement. So that is the kind of quick synopsis of, of what this documentary is actually about. Yes, perfect. Beautiful job. We're going to talk about some, some points that we uh, wanted to discuss. First of all, is their choice to do 
like a reenactment along with interviews. And they use freaking Matthew Modine, who was a celebrated right, actor, right. to play. Um, yes. Yeah, I was shocked. I was, I, I like, once we started watching it, I was like, wait, I, I know him. Like, I recognize him. Like, you, when you hear reenactment, it's like, okay, I, you know, th- these are people who are, they're working, but they're not going to be people you know from other things. But lo and behold, that he was Rick Singer. It was Singer, wild. So. And they had the, the villain in WandaVision. He was one of the, the guys who was paying for his kid to get in. So it was, it was, I was like, wow, they, they're getting legit actors. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I will say that, um, you know, I I was worried when I heard that they were going to do that because it's such a kind of unconventional choice for a documentary. And like you said, that it was sort of split between that and, you know, actual conventional interviews with people. Um, but I, I think they did it as responsibly as you could. I, one of the interesting things about Varsity Blues is, is that the FBI published this massive, massive cache of wiretapped phone calls, or at least like the transcripts of them between Singer and all these parents. And what the documentary does is basically a very, very strict kind of reenactment of those conversations, word for word, yeah. pause for pause, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of the parents being like, I'm not going to get in trouble for this, right? And Singer being like, oh, no, right. definitely not. It's- it, yeah, it was, I, <laughs> I was like, wow, okay, so they're they're really doing this. I, I don't know how they prepare, maybe they, well, obviously they read the transcripts. I don't know if there's any audio left over or something, but I, I it kind of reminded me, did you ever see the casting John Bonet Netflix I didn't. And it's, I didn't it kind of does the same thing, except they kind of talk to the actors and they're like, so what do you who do you think killed John Bonet Ramsey? And so I yeah, it's a little like, OK, this is the more evolved form. I mean, maybe we needed Matthew Modine's <laughs> yeah, opinion in, in yeah. all of this. Like, what do you think? Exactly. After? Yeah, I, I do think they really <laughs> missed an opportunity to cast Ca- Candace Cameron Bure as Lori Laughlin, you know? That would have been great. But um, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't see anyone as as Lori or Felicity, like who are the two kind of most prominent names, like you were saying, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting that, that they were not really included in it. I think I think their involvement was like alluded to a little bit, but but the parents were mostly people who are not these sort of like name brands. You, you know, for sure that like so and so was involved in this. The, the kind of fun part of the reenactments was that they, I mean, I can only imagine the actual logistics behind this, but they they seem to have basically rented mansions in all these different places to have the actors portray very, very wealthy people. And I have no idea, you know, how how similar those were to like the, the real people's actual homes. Probably not that close, but it was really fun to, you know, kind of see people beside their gorgeous pools and above their family winery and in their mansions and their plush offices and and all of that stuff that you don't really get from just reading the transcript. Exactly. Yeah. And I felt like more like a fly on the wall being like, oh, wow. Okay. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I liked it, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And I know you mentioned in your piece, you talked about how Netflix is kind of trying to to position this as the next, you know, fire festival, the iconic Tiger King. I think it's it's either been like a year or almost a year since that just blew up the internet. Um, And yeah. Do you want to talk about that? That's an interesting choice for them, I think. I mean, I, I guess they're trying to corner the true crime kind of aspect here, but... 
Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's like a weird scammy corner of true crime, right? But uh, it's, it's um, so, so Operation Varsity Blues, this, this new documentary comes um, from director Chris Smith and writer John Carmen, and they both worked on Netflix's Firefest docu- uh, documentary, and then Smith also executive produced Tiger King. And I was actually, speaking of like the anniversary of Tiger King, I was thinking about how it was such a sensation when it came out. And I think it really was in the beginning of um, this kind of lockdown era of the coronavirus, because I remember ordering from my like local beloved ramen place and they like included printouts oh, of wow. Tiger King and like little packs of crayons that what? you could like draw at home and it was like the <laughs> sweetest amazing. thing but like that that is like the level of phenomenon that Tiger King was right like it was this absolute pop culture sensation um and I don't I don't think that this one is is going to get there um and I think you know, I think part of that is is there just, you know, there wasn't a ton, I think, that was new in this. And, and we can talk a little bit later about kind of the sourcing part of it, but it, it doesn't feel like you are necessarily learning things in this, even if it is kind of fun to be a fly on the wall. Right. I totally agree. It was kind of like that happened, what, almost two years ago? And so it it felt almost, I mean, it, it's still interesting. It's still, I find it like to be a very interesting scandal involving, you know, the rich and wealthy. But at the same time, like you said, it's, I've, I've already read the articles, you know, so it's like, okay, I get it. And I guess the people <laughs> in this documentary, part of the enduring appeal of Tiger King is that the characters were crazy. They were insane, like just these wild characters. And no one is totally wild or has a totally great personality. And that was really <laughs> hit home when they were talking about Rick Singer himself. They're like, well, the guy doesn't really have that much of a personality. He's just like kind of there. Yeah. He just loves to like work out and and swim. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's there's certainly no Joe Exotic or Carol Baskin in this, which is, you know, probably for, for the, you know, to, to everybody but the viewers um, uh, right. benefit. But <laughs> yeah. it's yeah, I you know, I mean I don't think I don't think anybody's going to be on like Dancing with the Stars <laughs> from from this. Wow. <laughs> that would be that you never know. That'd be a great comeback for Felicity or Lori, you know? That's true, actually. They And Dancing with the Stars is not above it. So <laughs> Yeah, maybe their agents, you know, <laughs> should get working exactly. on this. And then another interesting part of this documentary is that they did have one person who was indicted in all this, John Vandemore, who is or was, I guess, the Stanford sailing coach. And he was the one person and he was interviewed. And I think they also had an actor portray him in some scenes, too. Or was that him? Maybe I he was definitely doing the on camera ones. I don't remember an actor, but I would I would believe that that happened for sure in, in, in the documentary. But, like and, and so what did you think about? I thought that was like I was I felt bad for him. I maybe I shouldn't, but I did. I really did because it seemed like he was, you know, kind of hoodwinked. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. So I mean, he, he like you said, he was he's the only person who was indicted in in all of this who cooperated with the documentary. So we see him on camera, and, and that is really interesting. But I I read through this this um, uh, book about the scandal as well that had some really great um, details. Nicole Laporte's brand new book on it, and um, it, it, she kind of got into how he became entangled in this. And one of the kind of really damning details was that Rick Singer had been trying to break into like the Stanford coaching scene for a long time because Stanford is like such a prominent school that it was very much in demand and all these wealthy parents really wanted like a way to, to right. bribe their kid in there. And and Vandemore was the eighth coach that he had approached. And the first, the first seven 
did not want to be part of this scheme for one, whatever reason. I don't know if they, you know, saw that it was right, illegal right. or not. You know, who knows what it was, but but he was the first one to take the bait, you know, coach number eight. So I don't think that bodes really well for you as you enter a criminal sure. enterprise. <laughs> yes, exactly. but, but basically, I mean, like his, his, what makes it kind of sad, but also sort of like fascinating, like you can't look away, is that his defense basically is that he just didn't know he was being bribed, like that he just didn't understand. And like, it's, you know, you may or may not believe that. Um, cer- certainly, like, they also had his lawyer, which I found really interesting. And it, it seemed like his lawyer didn't particularly believe that. And they kind of p- play back. They they have this kind of segment of the, the wiretap involving him where he kind of seems to acknowledge quite clearly his his role in this. And the, the lawyer basically tells him that, like, if they go to a jury trial, right. it is not going to yes. go well for him. So he ends up, like, cooperating. and But he has this sort of sad, aw shucks defense, which is just like... Well, I just, you know, I didn't realize why he was giving me all this money. Yeah, you're right. He went into this whole, they started talking about one of this girl who was like the daughter of like a Chinese billionaire. And they were like, we just want to introduce you. And oh, her dad also wants to give a bunch of money to Stanford's <laughs> rowing team. And he was just like, wow, no one ever wants to give money to Stanford's rowing team. And I, part, part of me was like, yeah, oh, no. I don't know. No, it was, I mean, it was adorable, but, uh, and I mean, like, sad too. But also, I mean, what makes it interesting kind of lends at least a little bit of credence to that is is that he, I think, was the only one um, of all these people who are kind of part of this coaching, this corrupt coaching network, who gave all of the money to the school. Like, he just turned around and handed the checks over to the, like, Stanford Athletics Department and his bosses there being like, look, I got a donation. And they were like, good work, buddy. Like, yes. And he also talks about how the athletic director (laughs) at Stanford, who I don't know if is still there or not, but he said he, well, this is his story. He goes into the office and is like, I just got a great, you know, a $100,000 <laughs> check from Rick Singer and some guy like we we met through Rick Singer and then the athletic director says something to the effect of oh, oh I know Rick Singer okay and just shuts down the conversation and so it's it seems to me that this athletic director kind of knew what was going on maybe but didn't want to acknowledge it and he didn't really want to tell um you know this poor John guy anything about it and I it just I don't know either this uh, Mr. Vandemore is a great actor or he really just kind of got played. Yeah, I mean, uh, t- like to your point, like it seems in his case in particular, um, and we spend a bit of time with him, like it really does seem like this kind of weird workplace drama for him as well, where it was just like sailing wasn't a very important sport in like the Stanford Athletic Department's opinion. And like it was not their kind of marquee thing. It did not bring in these, you know, flashy awards or, uh, you know, donations or anything like it was not something they cared much about. And so finally, he kind of found a way to like ingratiate himself with his bosses. And like, it's really kind of It totally is. And I I just felt for him because you know, I've been like I've been in meetings and I've been on phone calls where you're just kind of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, OK. To people just to like move, move on, move the conversation like I, I have other things to do. And that was kind of his defense when they talked about the uh, call that pretty much got him indicted. And I, it was just like, I've been there. I've I've done those things. So I don't know. Maybe I, I felt like, oh, my God, I could have been susceptible to that, too. But I, there was something about him that his just ah shucks and like mopey demeanor just made me feel bad for him. 
him. And I don't know if I should, but like I I did. I did. No, I mean, he he referred to, I think, like that that phone call where he was, he he said that he was kind of just hurrying out the door and he was just doing this kind of like, yeah, 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 okay, 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 I'll, you know, we'll talk to you later. Um, he, he like called it like the worst mistake of his life and it really like, it did have this kind of, uh, you know, incredibly destructive effect on his on his life, whether or not, you know, he was knowingly participating in this scheme. So I, I you know, kind of wonder if his decision on like a personal level to participate in this documentary was, he kind of saw it as a way to to clear his name maybe. I, I think so. And honestly, to me, I kind of was like, poor guy, but who knows? I, I obviously don't know the whole story. But and then what do you think is the enduring appeal of this just iconic Varsity Blues scandal itself? Yeah, I mean, it, another interesting part. I, so they talked to, you know, John, John Vandemer's attorney, but also a few other attorneys who were, you know, kind of peripherally involved in this case at one level or another. And they, they a, a few of them kind of make the point that this is this is a weird case. Like they tried to bring it as like, I, I, I guess a, like a Rico, a Rico case, a Rico indictment. I do not, I do not know how to speak legalese at all. And I think that ultimately failed, but obviously that is, that is most often used in kind of organized crime um, sort of scenarios and, and, you know, very serious crimes with very obvious um, victims, which is not to say that, you know, kind of messing with these systems that involve so much wealth and prestige and opportunity and kind of, you know, keeping keeping this sort of like the good old boys get get the nice thing system. Like, obviously, that does have many victims, but it's a little less direct than, for, for instance, some totally. organized crime <laughs> events. But so it's, it's interesting why this kind of weird minor crime that didn't actually involve that many people sticks around. And I, I, I think for me, at least, like my enduring interest in it is just... I mean, it's kind of funny because like there aren't the, you know, these obvious victims. You just sort of get to to kind of, you know, it's a little bit of schadenfreude, right? At that, like the, the how the mighty have fallen, right? These masters of the universe who are caught doing just like this really dumb, embarrassing thing for their like good for nothing teenager who just didn't want to study for math. Yeah, that's right. Who, like, who just like hated chemistry and like didn't bother. It is interesting. And some of, you know, I've read stuff on, on this case before and some of the kids are like, I, I didn't know anything, okay? So, I mean, who knows? But yeah, I, well, that's actually a really interesting part of, of the wiretaps. And I read through a bunch of the FBI documents this week as I was working on this piece. And there are a, a lot of the parents are really kind of adamant. They're like, it would really crush my kid if they found out that I was doing this. And I think, I, I mean, like given the context of those calls, like that that's true. Like the parents did think that and they were trying to keep it from their kids, probably in all those situations. And uh, like to imagine the kind of Interfamilial fallout that that this has had, and like there, you know, there are situations where like they're alluding to their younger kids who aren't yet like high school juniors or seniors, and and being like, oh yeah, like my my daughter though, she's really gonna need help, so let's you know let's circle back on that, and like that girl will have read that now, right? Like they know that, like like setting apart like the actual cases and like p- potential like prison sentences, like what? Surely this has been like a really damaging thing in in a lot of families. And it's hard to feel bad for these people who are so wealthy and so privileged, but it really is, I'm sure, a thing. Oh, to, I mean, even even in the case of Lori Laughlin and her daughter, it seemed like they were on contentious terms for a while, like a summer or so ago. Yeah. And yeah, it's really it's sad. And something that struck me is um, Naomi Fry was interviewed and she said kind of towards the end that, you know, one of the parts of all this is that, you know, we 
as Americans, we love and we hate the wealthy. We, you know, love, you know, being a fly on the wall again and learning about them. But at the same time, you know, it's it's frustrating that a certain class of people kind of gets things handed to them. And again, it's just it's it's interesting. The whole anything dealing with the wealthy and how, Mm -hmm. you know, how far they're willing to go is, is genuinely interesting. And um I would be remiss if I didn't mention how they found a way to drag in Jared Kushner in this narrative, which was iconic. And also is something that fascinates me, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he they they suggested that he was a classic backdoor case, right? That like his family had just donated so much money that it, it didn't matter. So they, they didn't have to, you know, stoop to bribing coaches. They, they did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They, they built a library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, very, very interesting series. It was I, I thought it went by pretty fast. Like it was just like it was a fast watch, I guess. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, like I, I kind of wish they had you know, done a little more, turned up a little bit more. But on the other, like, I, I don't think this needed to be like an eight part <laughs> oh my God. series. But like one of the things that that they kind of sort of hinted at, because it's sort of like an inevitable part of this, especially with the parents who want to keep it from their kids. It's like, were the parents doing it for their kids or for themselves? And it seems it seems very much to be that the parents in almost all those cases were were doing it for themselves, that it it meant something to them and to their personal standing in their careers or lives or whatever to like have a kid that went to like a quote unquote good college and and kind of like untangling why that is and why that meant something to them and and it, it, I mean, it's it's weird. It's I don't know that it, that's an easy thing for a documentary to to look at because it's not like that. That was in the wiretaps, but um, no, I, <laughs> I agree. I found it interesting when they briefly spent time on how competitive college admissions is and has been for mm-hmm. a long time. And they mentioned the U.S. World News Report rankings and just how you know these ACT, SAT, aptitude tests really skew towards wealthier uh, children and whatnot. And you can pay for uh, tutoring and all that stuff. And I, it's that it, I think I would have liked to see more of that. I thought that was really interesting because that's not something I mean, I think that's a totally kind of different thing in itself. But um, no, I mean, I think I think that it's it's totally related. And I think honestly, that that was a lot of the argument Rick Singer used as he recruited these parents to be part of the scheme, he would basically say, I mean, look, like college admissions are broken. And that is true. That is objectively true. Like it is, it is a corrupt game. Like Jared Kushner did it the right way. Right. But like who, but who thinks that that is fair? Like nobody thinks that, uh, maybe Ivanka, <laughs> yeah. but she might, she might <laughs> right. be the only one. Um, and, and, you know, being like, okay, well, you know, nobody's getting in fairly for the most part. So, so how can we kind of find our own way to to fight that system and obviously what they landed on was was absolutely illegal but um you know it it it, it is broken it is it is a you know very very broken system yeah wow well i think we both recommend it it's on netflix you can stream it now and um thank you guys for listening you can find me amelia wedemeyer on tea time and you can find claire mcnear on the ringer.com and you can also buy her book answers in the form of questions a definitive history and insider's guide to jeopardy anywhere books are sold
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.